The following is a paid program, and the views expressed are those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPTF or Curtis Media Group. Information provided is of a general nature. Listeners seeking specific advice should contact a licensed professional in the appropriate area. Welcome to Heart Health Radio with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Heart Health Radio, Heart Health Radio, oh, 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 hearthealthradio.com, Heart Health Radio. Heart Health Radio is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action, talk to your doctor. Well, this is Heart Health Radio on the Heart Health Radio Network. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. But... It'd be neat if you participated, right? Oh, yeah. The, the, the highlight of my day is when I get the calls. It's just great. The We'd telephone number here, always call between noon and 2 on a Saturday, 919-860-9783. There's a lot of things that we prepared to talk about, but, yeah. you know, if the phone rings, that's we talk the, about most, anything. Yeah, the most important thing. Um, there is the issue of baby formula being shipped to our southern border. Uh huh. Um, did you hear what Bette Midler's response was? Yes, I try did. Try breastfeeding instead. I mean, it, come on. Has, I'm sorry. I hate to use the S word, stupid word, but that is just stupid. Because if someone's using breast formula, right, ninety nine percent of the time it's because they had problems with breastfeeding. I mean, baby formula. Yeah, baby it means formula. they're having trouble with. They had trouble with breastfeeding. And, you know, baby formula has been around since, you know, they first started manufacturing stuff. Right. And it's just crazy. And, well, you know, the thing is, it's not coming from China. The the it, There's only three baby formula manufacturers in the United States of America. Right. Only three. Right. And one, one of the factories just went out. Right. Went out. But what they've decided to do is sh- the government, instead of collecting the formula for our own citizens they're giving it to the uh to the uh, illegal immigrants i mean i don't get it it's a sensitive subject because whoever I, you don't want illegal immigrant babies it. to die right right but what about what about the citizens of the united states who need baby formula right and so what's going to happen they're going to dilute it you know, put in extra water to make it go further. Which is wrong. Which Very is bad. a disaster. Or are they going to go on the internet and say, how do you make your own baby formula? Which I think is very dangerous. Um, because, you know, one slip, one mistake. Sure. And you could hurt your baby. China has locked down 400 million people. Did you see, did you, have you seen them on TV screaming and yelling? Yes. And trying to escape? Well, from their confinement. How long could you get locked down in your apartment without food, without an influx of new food? You know, without about ten takeout. minutes. Ten minutes, yeah. exactly. There's a there's a new hoagie shop, Primo Hoagie. Yeah. In my building. Yeah. I'm gonna give them a free plug. Yeah. I go down there about every half an hour and buy a <laughs> hoagie. No, but the point is, these people are locked in their homes. They yeah. can't shop. Food can't get in. The government is trying to pass out food, but that's not an effective system. It's just nuts. And the zero COVID policy is is insane. I mean, and this is how we got into the mess we're into. I mean, 
people have to live. People have to go to the grocery store. People have to go to the drugstore. Yeah. They have to go to work or else they can't <laughs> afford right. to go to the grocery store. Right. And so this concept that you can just lock people away until COVID goes away, you know what's going to happen when they unlock them, don't you? And what's that? They're all going to get COVID. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I've been sick this week. Uh, I, I was tested twice for COVID, had a home test. And then my work told me that I needed to get a real test, a PCR test. So I did that. Uh-huh. I've had, um, what do they call it? Bronchitis. <coughs> oh, it's been terrible. I don't have to go. I, I'll tell you what. People drive by me and they're smoking in their car. Yeah. And I know it. It just tickles my throat. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. It's terrible stuff. I want to find out from you what it is that I got. Because I don't yeah. know whether, I, you know what yeah. I mean? They, I'll tell you all about it. Bronchitis okay. is a good subject because it's so common. And people will need to know what it is. And I, I just got a Z-Pack, and the Z-Pack, the, the, the next day, I was feeling much better. Well, and you know, if you hadn't been diabetic, you would have gotten a course of prednisone. Really? Anti-inflammatory, yeah. Yeah. And that, that would have made you better right away. Really? Yes. Oh, well, this is... Absolutely. A, that's racism. Oh, no, it's, it's not. It's racism. It's I called diabetesism. The, I should have gotten the really good stuff. Anyway. Oh, you would have been, you would have been giving yourself 100 units of insulin every five minutes. I'm joking, but it would have jacked to, your sugars. Oh, up. it would have. Okay. That's the right. whole point. It jacked your sugar. I, I always assume people know what I'm thinking. But why wouldn't they give steroid prednisone? Because it would make his sugar go sky high. Oh, that's terrible. My sugars, yeah. by the way, have been excellent. I got this new machine, this new toy. Yeah. It's somewhere. You know what finds me? What? It, it, when I put this machine, this little meter reader, I put it down and walk away from it in the house, it starts beeping because I'm too far away from oh, it. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It'll, well, and it, do, you it, have, do you have the Freestyle or? Freestyle 2, read? which means it's a continuous wow. update. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's just, it keeps reading it. It keeps you reading it. You don't have to push a button. Well, I do push a button, but here, all right, I got the thing right here. He's, he's reaching for it now. I'm reaching for it right now. This thing right now, I push the button and I go beep. Okay. 115, that's my, my number. Okay. Now, if I leave this in the studio and go somewhere else, it'll start beeping because it no longer senses that I'm there. Uh. And if my sugar, even though I didn't wave the thing next right. to my it'll arm. it'll say it's too low. It'll say it's too low. It's amazing. Will it tell you it's too high? No, it doesn't care. I don't now, think. Here, here's the thing. I ha- These are called CGMs. <laughs> yeah. Continuous glucose monitoring. Yeah. Here's the thing, and maybe I'm wrong. Okay, you tell me. What? Does it give you a false sense of security so that I'm going to eat that banana split, and I'm just going to, as it goes up, start pounding it down with more insulin? No, because I have never played video games, but this right here is the closest I come to a video game. Really? I got 115 on my, 115 is good, right? Yeah. If I got 115 for That's great. three months, Forever, I'd probably get I'd a seven. I'd on the back. Probably get a seven Now, there for are some A1C. diabetologists who would disagree with me. Okay. But when you talk about tight control, yeah. which is the mantra of a diabetologist, tight right. control, tight control, tight control. Yes. The problem is what? You get a lot of low spells, and you're chasing them. Right. Because you can't always predict that that 20 units of insulin with, you know, your croissant yeah. 
is not going to kick in after the croissant kicks out. Right. And you're going to end a 40. Um, did your diabetologist teach you carb counting? We have not gotten to that point. Okay, no, so we're the, not counting. When I was at the hospital, yeah, um, there would be a knee-jerk endocrine consult for anybody with diabetes. Sure. And so my patients, bless them, don't know a carbohydrate from a pork chop. Okay, <laughs> And that's not because they're dumb. They weren't educated about food science. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So they would walk in. And they would say, you have a heart problem. Yeah. You need tight control because that reduces your risk of a heart attack. So they would write down on a piece of paper, okay, and this is before CGMs, continuous glucose monitors. Yeah. And they would say, okay, for every gram of carbohydrate, <laughs> you take X amount of insulin. And they go, okay, okay. So they go home and they go, Okay, he said carbohydrate. Does that mean, <laughs> what does that mean? And so they come to me with multiple spells of glucoses in the 600s and multiple spells of glucoses in the 40s. Yeah. And you talk about risk of heart attack. The biggest risk of a heart attack for a diabetic is when the glucose is low. Because, I mean, Dave, you've had the experience, right? I have, yes. What happens? The heart starts pounding. Yep. You start sweating. Yep. Your consciousness starts slipping away. Your mm. blood pressure skyrockets because the body knows that if that sugar doesn't get up quick, your brain's going to shut down because the only source of energy for your brain is sugar. So it's not the way to go. And it, adrenaline is one of the primary ways that you that your own body raises sugar. It makes the liver excrete your glycogen, which is a liver storage area. Yeah. And the flood of epinephrine into your bloodstream, that's the fight or flight hormone, will strain your heart. And right. I've seen it, heart attacks following a severe hypoglycemic episode. So, yeah, you want to be controlled. But this whole concept that you're always 95, and if you get over 100, oh, bad. And... I draw labs a lot, and the A1C I shoot for eh, is a little bit above 6 instead of 5.5. And now that's recognized, and the reason you don't want to get down to 5.5 is if you've got that kind of control, you're going to have multiple episodes of low. Right. And, you know, I see this commercial for, um, not Freestyle, what's the name of the other one that's out there? I don't know. Oh, well, there's another yeah. one out there, and I'm losing my ability to remember names. It's okay. But anyway, um, this is a really big, heavy set guy yep. with a banana split yeah. and a Coca-Cola in front of him. Yeah, right. And he's got the CGM, and he reads it. He smiles. He gives himself some insulin, and then he pigs out. And so that's the worry that I have, that people think, okay, I'll see what my sugar is, and then after five bites of yeah. the banana split, I'll check yeah. it again, yeah. and I'll keep driving it down with more insulin. And insulin is, you've got your own insulin if you're a type 2 diabetic. The more you give yourself, all you're doing is driving that sugar down with more insulin. You're not correcting the fundamental flaw. And I just worry, because people who take insulin as their primary form of diabetic control, gain weight, 
they don't lose weight. Yes, they do. Because part of the way that insulin works is driving sugar into your fat cells, which makes them grow. And the new medications that are out, um, the GLP-1s, like Trulicity, and the new one that's coming out, we talked about last week, it was approved. Oh, good. Um, And I'm really, really excited. That has GIP and GLP-1. And boy, you lose weight on that one. 40 pounds on average. Wow. And much better A1C control versus insulin. That's good. So, yeah, we're heading in the right direction in terms of diabetes control. Now, you know, the CGMs, the continuous glucose monitoring, are soon going to be hooked in to those little things. Have, you, have they talked to you about that, that little thing you can put on your belly? A pump? Yeah, but it's yeah. it's a disposable pump. Oh, boy. And you slap that sucker on after you've loaded it with your insulin. Right. And then from the uh, other app, Yeah. okay, so you read your CGM and it's 250. Right. You know your formula. You read your other app that says, you know, and you push a button and you give yourself the insulin that you're supposed to have. Well, why not connect the two? Right, right, right. And they're working on it. The problem is the Food and Drug Administration is going to have to have proof that it can't go wrong. Sure. And so they want the brain in there as opposed to uh, an artificial intelligence ship. Well, I don't want a German hacker getting into my, my yeah. pump. Well, why German? You know, 30, 30 units I think you should say Russian, you know. not German. Right, the Germans are on our side. Oh, now, okay, all right. okay. It's the Ruskies, okay, <laughs> that could hack into it. <laughs> and drop and my blood you. sugar immediately. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk about these things. We're also going to talk about the National Institutes of Health actually hid genomic sequences. Now, here's the fun part. You don't have to know what a genomic sequence is because he does. And the fact is, if somebody hit it, it's not a good thing. Yeah, you don't cover up unless you've done something wrong. And guess okay. who asked them to hide the genomic sequence? Again, you and I don't need to know what a genomic sequence is. Well, we're talking about COVID, is. and we're talking about Fauci, and we're talking about the Chinese saying, we don't want you to know this, Yeah, and it's bad. All right, that's coming up on the radio program. This is Heart Health Radio on the Heart Health Radio Network. This is Heart Health Radio. We are on Apple Podcasts and also Spotify and on the radio. Isn't that great? All right, so the National Institutes of Health I'm not sure we need to know what genomic sequences are. Well, I tell you are, what it is. Okay, but, so so the COVID yeah. um, uh, virus yeah. is made up of a genetic material okay. that, in a sequence of four different chemicals, A, C, G, T, whatever, yeah. Yeah. that sequence determines what that virus produces to bust into your cell. Okay, and so we know that there are natural sequences in COVID or coronaviruses, and we know what they are. So we can tell how this thing is different. And COVID is definitely different from your normal coronaviruses because it activates inflammation, it gets into your cells, and we know the sequences of the genetic instructions that tell it to do. So what happened was the Chinese, they first denied there was a, a pandemic, then they said, yeah, yeah, there is. And then they rushed to 
find out the exact sequence of the genetic material. And they found it. Yeah. And they published it. Huh. But wait a minute. They called up Fauci and said, take off these sequences, hide them. And you know what he said? Huh. Sure. Okay. Yeah. We'll do that. Okay. And he claims that they didn't destroy them, the, the recordings of the sequences. But right. guess where they are? They're on a tape drive. Right. And they can't yeah. find it. Or, or, or they know where it is, but it's going to be really hard to get it. Now, you know what a tape drive is? Sure. Back in the day when my daddy was a computer scientist, if you remember those computers that were big as walls. Yeah. And they had those spinning reels. Because everything was recorded on magnetic tape, like like your daddy's old stereo. Right. And now they, they, they put it on tape so it can't be accessed, right. and it's over in the corner somewhere. Clearly, this is the equivalent of, okay, the Star Wars Christmas special is available, but it's only on beta. Right. That, that's exactly right. Instead of being on, not even a DVD. What yeah. about a flash drive? Right. What about uh, in the cloud? No, no, no. no, no. It's, it's on Betamax. It's on Betamax. And so what does this tell you? You usually don't cover up something. Unless, what, what do they say? Where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. So right. what is in this sequence that the Chinese government did not want us to know? Now, there are certain genetic sequences that are not found in nature because they are a part of genetic engineering. Am I saying, and there's already in the ones that are published, some genetic sequences in the ones they kept Mm -hmm. that look like they're artificial. Mm -hmm. So what's there, dudes? And the other thing is, it was up for a while online before it was taken down. So why didn't anybody copy it? I mean, was it such a obscure website that nobody would know to look? And wouldn't Fauci have copied it? I don't know. But when there's smoke, like I said, when there's smoke, there's fire. And, you know, they're all trying to claim, listen to the science. Yeah. I represent science. As, yeah. though, as though science is this truth that cannot be challenged. And it, it to me, I can't come to conclusions. I can't say what is, you know, the absolute answer here, but it sure looks fishy. Yeah. It sure looks suspicious. And what are we doing? Why are we doing this? I mean, is it such that when the truth comes out, uh, everything that Rand Paul has said and the anti-Fauci people have said may be true? I don't know. But the truth will set you free. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm... I've got a curious question because I had a disease that masked as, you know, as COVID. I had congestion. Uh, yeah. I had bronchitis. Bronchitis. I went to a telehealth yeah. thing with my doctor. He says, yeah. yep, bronchitis. Yeah, I got bronchitis. So pneumonia is at the far end of the lung infection process, okay? Yeah. And then a nagging cough is at the other end, of the yeah. benign end. Okay. Uh, although it can turn into something not benign. So what is bronchitis? It's sort of in the middle, okay? So the bronchial tubes, bronch, that means lung. Yeah. So when you have itis of something, you have inflammation. 
So bronchitis is itis of the bronchial tubes. I got it. Okay. So what causes it? 90% of the time it starts with a virus. So like a non-COVID coronavirus or an adenovirus. They get into your system. They get into your lungs. You inhale it. It starts to infect the bronchial tissues. Those are the tubes that feed air, that allow air to pass through. And what you do is you have these little teeny-weeny millions and billions of little fingers. Sure. They're called cilia. And they take particles that you inhale, and they sort of move them up toward the top of the trachea, and you cough, and then you swallow them. So that's one of the functions of the bronchial tubes. Well, if you get infected, the first thing that goes is the cilia. Okay, they start to die off. Now, luckily, you know, you reproduce them, but it may take a while. So if the cilia aren't functioning, a larger infectious organism called a bacteria can start to grow because it's no longer being pushed out by the cilia uh, from the lungs. And so then you get a bacterial infection on top of it. Now, there's an old wives' tale that says you can tell if it's just a virus because the cough spittle or the sputum is clear. And then you can tell if there's a bacterial infection because what you cough out is green goobers. Okay, yeah. that's what we uh, Thank you, know, you for sure. Resident. Green goobers. Yeah, oh, okay. Back, yeah. So that's kind of what you use uh, as a doctor to determine whether you give antibiotics or whether you just, you just ride it out. Okay. Now, remember, you know, in the 1800s, out on the prairie, people got bronchitis all the time. Now, a lot of times it turned into pneumonia, and then people would either die or recover on their own. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't used to have these antibiotics that got rid of things very quickly. Now, why would we have given you prednisone? The reason is it's strong anti-inflammatory. It would reduce the overactive um, uh, immune cells that are producing too much sputum right. that made you cough more. So that would help. And then an antibiotic to kill the bacteria. Now, here's the interesting thing people don't realize about some antibiotics. Yeah. They're anti-inflammatory. So okay. the reason why you got so much better quicker, because it took it would take a while to kill your bacteria, is azithromycin is anti-inflammatory. So right, you felt better quick. Yeah. yeah, I did. All right. Well, look. well, did that? Do you understand what I said? No, this not is, a, not if a single Dave thing. understands, no, not then the listeners. Yes, I totally understood, understood it. Good. I totally under, I understand. If you don't tell me, I was me. sick and I had crud in me. Yeah. That's Heart Health Radio. <laughs> now back to Heart Health. Have a question for Doctor Weefald? Call nine one nine eight six zero nine seven eight three. This is Heart Health Radio. Dr. Franklin Weefold is here, and we have Rose Hoban from North Carolina Health News.org. Hi, Rose. How are you? Good, fellas. How are you? Good. The fellas here are reading this article North Carolina nursing shortage likely to increase. Can community colleges help? Dr. Weefold's got a one word answer. Well, maybe. 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 Okay. Yeah, tell me what. Tell me your uh, take on this, Rose, because I think, I mean, this is a critical issue. I, I, you know how much nurses are getting paid now because they don't have an. I mean, supply and demand. Yeah, there are some yeah, nurses absolutely. in the hospitals making two hundred thousand dollars a year. Now, I have no problem I, with that. I don't think anyone's making two hundred. Oh yeah, pay. yeah. Um, well, I know two I, I, are uh, ICU nurses at a hospital 
uh, right near me. And the reason is they're very experienced, but also they're cheaper than travel nurses to just pay them. Yes, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. Travel nurses are very expensive. The travel nurses don't walk away with that money. They right. uh, A lot of the money goes to the agency. Right. You're but absolutely the right. travel nurses do do well. Yeah. Um, and... Um, However, and I, I, yeah, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they don't deserve it. I, but the problem well, is, is that hospitals are going to have to raise their prices to pay for this. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, that might be part of it. Um, but also, you know, one of the things that I, I you'll see on Monday, I went up to Washington on Thursday uh-huh. to walk along with the Nurses March. Oh, cool. The, Tell us about that. And it, and the. <laughs> More of what I was hearing, um, I was hearing stories from nurses in this state who are losing colleagues who are going into the food service industry because they can make more money. Really? Um, That's terrible. Um, Yes. um, Or make equivalent. I talked to one nurse who makes $31 an hour, and one of her colleagues had gone off to be a beer tender. Um, and she makes twenty nine dollars an hour, and as this woman said, and she gets free beer. Oh wow! Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think the you can point at nurses who are doing very well, like you, like you have. But right. It's it's not common. Unicorns. Yeah. They're the they're the unicorns for sure. Um, and what we're seeing instead is that um, the state is looking at perhaps um, lacking of upwards of twenty one thousand nurses by twenty thirty. And so now one of the big issues um, in a place like a community college is that now that nurses are making more money, and this has been an issue for a while, yeah. is that you take a significant pay cut to go and teach at a community college. Radio. And so they're really having a hard time um, finding faculty at community colleges. That's one problem. Um, and, you know, the, the, the rule is that uh, the nursing program faculty members, um, 80% of them need to be, uh, I'm sorry, 50% need to have master's degrees. And, um, and now they changed the rule, the state changed the rule so that 80% of full-time and 50% of part-time faculty need to hold master's degrees in nursing, right? So that takes extra education. Whereas if you are a nurse and you're practicing and you have that extra education, you can just go off and make another twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year. So there's that. Um, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts in getting enough nurses. The thing that I find to be unfortunate is that there used to be somebody in the Department of Health and Human Services that did nurse tracking. Uh-huh. Um, when I first moved to North Carolina, I remember sitting down with this woman in like 2005, and she was like, "North Carolina is in good shape in terms of nursing shortages," but um, the legislature cut that position, and so there hasn't been the nurse tracking at the state level, and so now we have you know academics who are doing that tracking. And, what does it? What does um, that mean? Tracking? Does that mean well, licensing? Um, well, folks at the uh, Shep Center for Health Policy Research at UNC Chapel Hill, yeah, they um, they have been following. They use the data from the North Carolina Board of Nursing, yeah, to um, track how many nurses there are in the state 
where they are working oh, yeah. and what their intentions are in terms of, you know, do they intend to keep nursing, uh, you know, stay in nursing? And um, so the, the woman who does that data analysis, um, actually you can get on the Chef's Center website and you can see where there are shortage areas and what's the supply of nurse, nurses, doctors, right. specialty doctors, all by county. Right. Um, and so they've got really good data. And she testified before the legislature, oh, uh, I think it was in January. Um, and she said that she is in 25 years of um, covering, you know, of, of not covering, excuse me, of... Um, uh, of analyzing this data, she's never been as worried about um, the prospect of nurses in the state. Right. Um, so, I mean, there's it's um it's a critical issue because the other thing that's happening, as you know, is that the um the population's getting older. Right. Right. And so we're going to need more people. Um, to care for people. Yeah. Um, I was, um, I'm working on a story. Another story that I'm working on is a hospital at home program story. Yeah. There's this move to try and keep people at home and it's fairly intensive. You have physicians who are monitoring um, these patients who are at home who otherwise would have been in the hospital. Um, they're happier are less likely to get a hospital-acquired infection. Um, and then they have somebody who visits them twice a week. So when I spoke to the physician who is running the program, she was telling me that they have something like 15 nurses. Um, and she's like, it sounds like a lot for 200 patients, but it actually isn't because you have to cover all three shifts. So. Sure. Um, so it's it's kind of it's a very complicated problem. Oh yeah, very complicated. Let, one of the things I've noticed, and and tell me if you've seen this, is that aren't community colleges don't they have a high flunk out rate? I mean, are they are they not passing nurses into you know the workforce who really could do it? Um, I I just have a couple people that I know really smart. And they showed me some of the questions on their exams, and I couldn't answer them. And they flunked out. And I think 70% of the first-year students at this one community college failed. And I just – I can't imagine, if you can get in, that there should be such a high failure rate. What's your experience? Am I wrong? Well, I don't know about the failure rates. I Again, I would probably – believe that that's an outlier. I do know okay. that there is there are a couple community colleges that really do have trouble. Um, and one of them, oh my gosh, where was one of them? I'm blanking on where it was. But um, I was reading about one community college that really was not doing well, right? Uh-huh. Most of the community colleges do quite well. The thing about community colleges is that many of the people who attend are attending part-time. So it takes longer to get through community college than folks who go, you know, who, I I don't know about you, I went, I got a four-year degree. It took me four and a half years to get through my four-year degree. That's Um, okay. Right? And so, and 
there are lots of people at community colleges that there are working parents, so they're taking two classes per semester. Um, so, and then it takes longer time. So I've spoken to a lot of nurses who graduate as associate degree RNs, and then they start working full time as an RN, right. and then they start taking bachelor's degree per, um, classes. And then it takes them a really long time. I spoke to one nurse um, at the March who said that she went from CNA, a certified nursing assistant, to LPN, to AA, to RN. And it took her 15 years. Wow. But obviously, she was determined to yeah. get to the point where she was an RN, yeah. a, a BSN, a, a bachelor prepared sure. nurse. Uh-huh. I, th- so, I, I think nurses are just so important. And we need so many more that, mm-hmm. I don't know, and I, I'm not a big government program person, but maybe just maybe the nursing board or somebody needs to ride herd on this and really make a, I don't know, a big stink and say, let's get a program together and let's encourage good people, men and women, women and men, to get into the nursing profession, keep them there. Uh, by making it a great thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the nursing board really has no control. All they do is they monitor people who are already right. licensed. They they don't have any teeth to say, you know, we need to do this. What they can do is they can go to the legislature and uh-huh. say, hey, legislature, it's time. Right. To That's what I'm talking about. Thing. You know. Right. right? Bully pulpit. And, um, bully. You know, try and use their bully pulpit. I do know that the governor came out with his budget on Wednesday or Thursday, uh, when Thursday, it was Thursday. Yeah. And um, he proposed $45 million in program um, funding to help, uh, uh, you know, encourage people to get into, um, uh, to help get into nursing and right. uh, healthcare, healthcare positions altogether. So that was, that was you know he he wants to address the healthcare workforce shortages. I would encourage so, anybody with a science or a caring heart, right? Yeah, a, a head I, you for know, science or you don't need to have heart. a huge science background. I mean, right. there are you know, and you're a nurse. There are core science courses that people need, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's like in med school. You know, they're really searching out now non-science nerds. I mean, yeah. I was a huge science nerd. Yeah. And they're searching out people who have good communication skills. And I think oh, that... Oh, yeah. And, and also, yeah, compassion. Okay? Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think the same needs to be said. If, if you're out there and you're listening and you want to care for people and you want to use your empathy and compassion, think about being a nurse. Uh, it's a great profession, and it's it's a great very profession. rewarding. You can do so yeah. many things with it. Yeah, Rose, thank you. Love you. Thank you, fellas. Talk uh, to you soon. You right. too. NorthCarolinaHealthNews.org. You can sign up for their newsletter, or you can just go there uh, daily and find out new things about healthcare in North Carolina. So uh, there are a couple of couple of things that came across my desk this week. One is that we figured out what Gulf War syndrome. Yeah. Was you know or is. is, yeah, and it turns it's out to be a weapon of mass destruction. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and and you notice 
in the New York Times right. and in you know other uh, publications of their ilk, they yeah. say, yeah, it was sarin gas. <laughs> and okay, well, did they mumble I, it? You're kidding. So sarin gas remember, was developed by the Nazis right. in World War II. Right, it's a neurotoxin. Uh-huh. Now, do you remember those crazy Japanese um, terrorists about 20 years ago? Sure. What was their big terrorist attack? They let sarin gas out in a subway station. Right. And it was called a terrorist attack with a WMD. What does that mean? Right. It's a weapon of mass destruction. So all these people went into Iraq, our soldiers, and there were huge burning piles that were left. And they walked by them and they got sick. And they have long-term neurologic damage. And now all of a sudden... All of us, and I don't understand why I'm the only one shouting this. It was sarin gas coming out of those burning fires. So are you That's telling me- That's a weapon me, of mass destruction. Are you telling me that in Iraq, there were weapons of mass destruction? Right. I was told reliably by smarter people than you and, that that could not happen. And why isn't George W. talking about this? Why isn't- the New York Post right, right, right. or somebody. If yeah. it's sarin gas, it proves there were WMDs in Iraq. So our soldiers have been affected by sarin gas. Uh, is there a treatment? No. No. Okay. Now suppose, okay, there's an acute treatment. Okay. Suppose you're exposed to sarin gas. It is a neurotoxin. So yeah. you can get atropine, okay, because it, it blocks the effect. But you got to keep giving it to yourself okay. until right. the sarin gas has gone away. Now, these soldiers did not die from the sarin gas, but they got enough in them that it caused permanent damage to their nervous system. Right. So, you know, if, if you know more about this and you're listening out there, if yeah. you're from the CIA or the Department of Defense yeah, yeah, well, you or from the Democratic National Committee, oh, uh, call me and tell me what I'm missing. Ordinarily, we don't want the CIA to get in contact with us, but you know, the numbers. I'm actually, open, uh, I'm a uh, big fan of the CIA. Oh yeah, yeah, they made mistakes, and everybody's made oh, mistakes. Oh sure, yeah, that uh, that old Castro thing. Do you think thing. they killed JFK? No, no, I don't either. All right. I don't know. No, no. As far as everybody knows, no, I don't think so. I don't I'm, know. I'm just saying, no, 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 they didn't. We they can would. talk about the medical the medical autopsy on JFK. It's amazing. All right, this is this is we're getting far <laughs> afield here. No, it's not. It's medical. He, I he, just he want you to know that as far as injury. Dave Alexander is concerned, the CIA is your friend, and they are good people. Okay, here's the telephone it. number here: nine one nine eight six zero nine seven eight three. Call us up with hopefully nothing to do with. The president's autopsy or anything like that. Coming up on this radio program, we're going to talk about the opioid crisis. Is there an opioid crisis or is it a fentanyl epidemic? Details on that coming up. On making on, uh, uh, making your heart great, okay? Making your heart great. And the next show is going to be called uh, something health, building I keep, health. I keep doing that. It's okay. I love on, it. On Heart Health Radio. Well, you know you make me. 
You're listening to Heart Health Radio, the words that I've just written on my wrist so that I don't forget. Heart Health Radio. Now we're changing the name to Making Your Heart Great. HeartHealthRadio.com <laughs> is our website, by the way. You can find the radio show there along with the, um, the, the other places where you can get your, your podcasts, including uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So, uh, are we shouting out Elizabeth Bonker right now? Yes, absolutely. Elizabeth Bonker was the valedictorian of her college class, even though she cannot speak. Yeah, so she has high-functioning autism. Right. She's got high-functioning autism. She's but, not able to not able, able to form words, but she's able to, with the help of somebody guiding her arm, to type out. And she is the valedictorian. Let's hear from her address. God gave you a voice. Use it. And no, the irony of a non-speaking autistic encouraging you to use your voice is not lost on me. Because if you can see the worth in me, then you can see the worth in everyone you meet. My fellow classmates, I leave you today with a quote from Alan Turing, who broke the Nazi encryption code to help win World War II. Sometimes, it is the people no one imagines anything of, who do the things no one can imagine. Be those people. Be the light. She was the valedictorian of Rollins College in Orlando, Florida. It's a great school. It's a women's college. Yeah. I don't know if they know. When I was in college, it was a women's college. Uh, It may be co-ed now. But, you know, autism... Has been controversial because I don't know if you remember all the uh, celebrities who felt that um, vaccines were causing autism. Yeah, well, yeah, now yeah. we know there's genetic components that are the, the driver of autism, and the spectrum is so wide. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. here is a woman um, who is capable of anything. I mean, what a brilliant mind to graduate you know, from college and become the valedictorian, and yet she is mute. She right. cannot speak. Right. But she understands everything around her and is capable of having a college major and moving on. I think she's going to do great things. But the what I would use this, as, as she so eloquently said, eloquently said, is don't count anybody out. Don't think that somebody with a challenge, be it either emotional or physical, um, cannot do and accomplish right. anything they set their heart and mind to. So it, to me, was one of the greatest stories. So do we have an opioid crisis or a fentanyl epidemic? Well, here, here's the thing I want to talk about mainly, okay, is the concept of experts in science telling us what to do yeah. and being wrong. Okay. So there, there became a huge crisis in opioid addiction, and it was said to be from the physicians prescribing. Now, were there horrible doctors in West Virginia and other places who set up pill mills? Right. Yes. Okay, so they are horrible people, mm. just terrible people who – Addicted a large number of young people to opioids. There's no doubt 
about it. But what happened was, is it tainted all of us, all of us who prescribed, quote unquote, pain meds. Right. And so I got investigated by the DEA. They walked into my office one day with guns on their hips and demanded to know why I was prescribing fentanyl. Well, there was a gentleman whose back was broken in four places, who was morbidly obese, had had a heart attack, was in congestive heart failure, Mm. and he was in horrible, constant pain. The only thing that worked were these fentanyl lollipops that were approved for cancer pain. And so they flagged it, came after me as though I were by nature, uh, a because I'm a doctor, um, overprescribing or getting people addicted or getting paid to give somebody something for illicit purposes. Now, here's the great thing. Is that person happened to be in the office that day. Really? And so he said, you know, let's see the record. And I showed him the record, it's six pages long. And he's like, oh, you're kidding me, right? And so I said, the guy's here. And so he went in, talked to him for about 30 seconds, looked at me and said, you're, you're good, bye. And never <laughs> came back. And then the medical board um, investigated me for, this, for a similar situation. And I did all this work, spent $40,000 on legal representation. And they, they wanted records on people and they wanted all this stuff uh, to prove that I had gone through a special class on using narcotic pain medications. And halfway through this, after two or three interviews that were, believe me, uh, scary because they were, you know, the kind of interviews is that, you know, how many people have you killed by using narcotics? Have yeah, you kept yeah. track, you know? Yeah. And so halfway through, my lawyer gets a phone call, case dismissed. Because it was obvious I was doing things correctly. Right. And so what happened was that we stopped prescribing uh, Percocet, uh, hydrocodone, because, and we stopped giving pain medication in the hospital after surgery. Right. Because everybody was afraid of having to go through what I went through. And even if you win, there's $70,000 in legal fees down the drain. So what happened? Instead of reducing opioid deaths by going after physicians as crooks and as drug pushers, we have increased them fivefold because they're dying of fentanyl overdoses. Because they're looking (coughs) for pain relief and the only way they can get it is fentanyl, street drugs. Or if you buy, it, it used to be very simple because we weren't. And I'll admit this, we weren't as careful as we should have been before new regulations came on board to make sure that our patients weren't selling their drugs. Right. Because you could get $30 for a 10 milligram Percocet pill. So if you got 60 of them, you'd pay 10 bucks and you'd get 1800 bucks back. Yeah. So the way we uh, prevent that is you have to come in once a month and you have to pee in a bottle. And we can tell by that P analysis how much you're actually taking. Right. And then they have to do what's called a pill count, where you count out the pills. Well, you could get these pills, and they look a certain way. They have stamps on them. Right. Well, you can't get them anymore, but what can you get? An identically-looking pill that is pure fentanyl. Off the streets. Off the streets. And it's more dangerous. And it will kill you. All right. We've got to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Heart Health Radio.
Welcome to Heart Health Radio with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Heart Health Radio, Heart Health Radio, oh, 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 hearthealthradio.com, Heart Health Radio. Heart Health Radio is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action, talk to your doctor. This is Heart Health Radio, the Heart Health Radio Network. Dr. Weefald is here. I we're am. Gonna, we're going to talk about couple of things. Uh, one is AFib. Am I saying it right? AFib? Yeah, or atrial. Atrial fibrillation and stroke. Uh-huh. Um, that if you've got both of those together, you got to get rid of one of them. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll have another one. Well, see, here's the thing. When you have atrial fibrillation, the yeah. upper chamber of the heart, which normally beats in a regular fashion, and then it goes down to the bottom chamber to beat yeah. afterwards in a regular fashion. Okay. Somewhere up in that tissue, it's just going haywire, and yeah. your heart is just quivering. And then when it quivers on top, the bottom part's not getting a regular impulse, so it's quivering on the bottom. But when it quivers on top, the blood pools in these little nooks and crannies in the top part of the heart. Right. It clots and then goes up to the brain and causes a interruption of brain flow, I mean blood flow to the brain called a brain attack or a stroke. And then you lose function. You can't speak or you can't move your arm. It's terrible. So the biggest way that we prevent that is by giving an anticoagulant, a.k.a. a blood thinner. Now, sure. I don't like to use that term because it doesn't make your blood runny like a paint thinner does. It just prevents those clots from forming. Right. Well, here's the problem. You can still have a stroke if you are on an anticoagulant. It's very rare, about 0.1%. Now, if you have certain cardiac conditions and you have AFib, you can have up to a 10% risk of stroke per year without being on anticoagulant. Well, here's the new news that kind of shocked me, that if you've had a stroke before from AFib, and you are on an anticoagulant, you have a 20% chance of having another one. I mean, that's just really high. I thought that the risk would still be really low. So what does that tell us? If you have had a stroke and you're on an anticoagulant from AFib, you've got to do more. We don't know what more is yet, but I think one of the things that we'll see is that some people who are quote-unquote asymptomatic from their AFib, that is to say, they don't feel it, they don't feel their heart being irregular, they can do exercise, all this other stuff, they say, okay, just rate control them. What does that mean? That means keep the heart rate at a normal level, despite the fact that the top part is quivering, going hundreds of beats a minute. If you can use the medications to keep the lower rate at normal, just leave it. Yeah. Well, now we think that they should have what's called an ablation, where you lay in a table in the operating room, the electrician or the electrophysiologist goes up with a couple of small little tubes and finds the area of AFib abnormality and zaps it or freezes it or electrifies it so it goes away. Right. And that may be the new recommendation. But if you have atrial fibrillation, you need to be following with the cardiologist or a really good internal medicine specialist and monitor you on an anticoagulant. If you can't take one, then talk about the watchman procedure, which is where they put a device in that prevents the clots that can form um, strokes. And here's the other thing I want people to know. If you're going to have open heart surgery, yeah. Suppose you're just going to have a bypass. 
or have a, a valve put in the old-fashioned way, cutting your chest open. Yeah. Ask your surgeon while you're at it. Can you get rid of the atrial appendage? Because it's this, you know, heart. You know what a heart looks like. It has sure. those things on top. Yeah. Those are the atrial appendages. Okay. And so that's where the clots form because they sort of flop around. And when there's not normal, you know, uh, regular flow, the clots form up there. Well, guess what? If you don't have that atrial appendage and you yeah. don't really, we don't even know why you have one. It's like the appendix. You're talking about the, the lumpy on top. part of the heart yeah. that looks that's like, why it looks the like baby's a heart. bottom. Yeah. yeah. Those are the atrial appendages. You can, you can ligate it. We put a string around it and sure. cut it off. You can yeah. snip it off. Okay. And it only adds about five minutes to open heart surgery. So if I were to have a bypass, if I were to have a new heart valve put in, I'd say Dr. Bolton, right. who's, who I would have to That's it. the guy, yeah. Yeah, Brian. Will you please lap off that atrial appendage? And I think he'd probably say yes. So here's the hints. If you have AFib out there, you should be followed closely. You should be on an anticoagulant unless you have a contraindication like a bleeding problem or if you fall down all the time. Yeah. You know, the risk-benefit ratio is, you know, against having an anticoagulant. If you're going to have open-heart surgery, ask the surgeon, Can is it advisable in my case to take off the atrial appendage? And then talk about this thing called the watchman with your cardiologist, which is great. It's a little cage they put in the atrial appendage. It closes it off so you can't form clots. Uh, there are some reasons why you can't have it, but you you know you need to talk to your cardiologist about it. But atrial fibrillation, you know, we used to think is you know the easy part of cardiology. Okay. In yeah. fact, the electric physiologist, I don't do AFib. Give that to somebody else. It's simple. Really, it's turning into the number one thing that electric physiologists do nowadays because we're finding out it's a bad boy. And we need to control it. And and my symptom for that would be what? I can okay. feel it Sometimes beating heavy? zero symptoms. So really? My okay. ex-wife had a stroke Yeah. at age 58, and nothing could be found. And so they fixed it by sucking the clot out of her brain uh, in the operating room. And then it, you know, I said, listen, you should wear a monitor. Why? They didn't have it in two weeks and you know, a week in the hospital. I said, wear right. a monitor. Right. The first day. She had AFib. Yeah. Couldn't tell. No symptoms. Now, usually you feel your heart beating irregularly. Now, what does that mean? The normal heartbeat is regular. Boom. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, yeah. So there's two types of irregular. Regularly irregular is uh-huh. like this. Okay. And that usually is an extra heartbeat called a premature contraction. Or... And that's called supraventricular or ventricular tachycardia. It's regular, can be really bad. AFib is like this. Holy mackerel. And it is the upper chamber just quivering and the bottom chamber trying to catch up. And so the electricity doesn't come through regularly. Right. People can feel like their heart's jumping out of their chest. They can feel dizzy, lightheaded. Any of those things, go see your doctor and get it checked out because AFib is not good at all. You want to get rid of AFib. Freddie Mercury's heart sounded different. It was this. <laughs> ye will, okay. we will shock you. <laughs> all right, all right. Edward in Colorado, welcome to the radio program. How you doing, Edward? 
Uh, pretty good, thanks. I listen on podcasts all the time. I'm so glad Great. you How's do. How's the Rocky Mountains? How did you find uh, out about us? Um, I don't know. I just like to listen to podcasts in general. I, I guess I just did a search on, uh, you know, health-type podcasts. Yeah, yeah, you like it? Good. Yeah, love it. Love Great. It. Thank you. Well, welcome. Uh, question, yeah, question. I, I'm on a statin, uh, 20 milligrams of Crestor. Yeah. And I was wondering, should I supplement with COQ10? Okay, that's a great question. Um, it's controversial, but I'm in favor of it, um, only based on my clinical practice. As far as I know, there haven't been large studies. Now, a lot of people who take a statin will get muscle cramps, especially in the legs. And it is thought that it is because the statin eliminates what we call a coenzyme. What does that mean? It's a chemical that binds to an enzyme that makes the enzyme work. And that's called CoQ10. And CoQ10 supplementation often, and it's been in my clinical experience, it works to prevent the muscle cramps. So what do you do? You start on a statin because you have a high cholesterol and you have risks of heart disease or stroke. And then it causes muscle cramps. Well, then you stop it. And Crestor is good because it's water-soluble. It will wash out quickly. A torvastatin is fat-soluble. If you want to get a torvastatin out of your system, you got to do it for a month, okay? Well, then when you've been off of it long enough, you start the CoQ10. And it's usually 200 milligrams once a day or 100 milligrams twice a day. And you build that up for two weeks. Then you re-challenge yourself with your Crestor. And usually, and it's been in my clinical experience, you don't have muscle cramps anymore. So I would, I, and, and the other reason why I have no problem with it. What's that? Yeah. Uh, the reason I have no problem with it is it doesn't hurt you. Okay, CoQ10 is water soluble. There's no side effects. So you can take 200 milligrams of CoQ10 despite anything. And whatever your body doesn't use, it goes in the turtle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. If I have no side effects with the statin, should I still take the COQ10? Okay. Now, suppose you have no side effects now, right? Right. I have seen this, hmm. and it's not psychological, okay? Two years after they started, they've had no problems, and they get it. They get the muscle cramp. Yeah. So, okay. you know, there is some thinking that you might as well just go ahead and take it okay. and prevent it from happening in the past. Now, Ask your doctor, make sure he or she says it's okay. But I will say this, if I had a patient like you who asked me these same questions, I'd say go ahead. And right. the number one reason is it can't hurt you, you know? Okay. And it may very well help you. You know, doctor said as long as I don't have any muscle cramps, he said it's probably not worth it. But again, it wouldn't hurt either. Right, right. And um, so then the other thing is if you get them two years from now, you take right. a statin holiday uh, and then go on CoQ10, and then re-challenge with a statin. And that's what I generally do. Minimum 200 milligrams? Uh, yeah, some people get away with 50. I mean, there's so many different brands. And, you know, there's Cunol, which is really expensive. That's what the doctor's right. guys, you know, on the TV right. show they recommend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, right. I tell my patients, just grab some off the shelf, you know? Okay. So Ubiquinone is okay? Yeah, that's great. It's the same right. thing. All right. Sounds good. I should hey, listen. Listening. I, I yes. ski in, in Colorado. I uh, used to go to Vail. Um, do you, where do you live in Colorado? Fort Collins. Oh, what is that like? Is it really a fort? Uh, not really. <laughs> it's affordable anymore. Is it? Is it? 400000 uh, for a half. Oh, wow. Days. Now, is it in the mountains or in the plain? It's on the foothills. 
Oh, great. You can see the mountains, but it's more how, cl- like- how close to Denver? About 50 miles north. Great. Well, listen. Yeah. Enjoy it. Rocky well, Mountain thanks, High. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank right, you, bye-bye. Edward. Thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. Got yeah. a phone call from Colorado. We could get a phone call from closer to home if you want to dial us. Actually, the longest phone call, yeah, he qualifies for a good one, but the yeah, longest yeah, yeah. one we've had yeah. is New Zealand. Remember? Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Our number is 919-860-9783. 919-860-9783. Got a call between noon and, well, noon and two on a Saturday. Well, that's Eastern time. He's in Colorado time. He's now, mountain time. I will say this. I don't mind giving out my um, my email, okay? Yeah. Because I've got a lot of great questions from emails. It's Dr. Weefald, D as in dog, R as in Robert, W-E-F as in Frank, A-L, D as in dog, at gmail.com. Now, it is not uh, secure. So, I will say this. If you are if you are using that email, oh, yeah. uh and you give me information about your personal health, that is on you. It's not on me. And I don't mind at all as long as you, it's, it's just one of those things. I do have a secure email, and that is drwefold at hushmail.com. Hushmail. And that's for the people who want me to be on the hush, hush. <laughs> hush, hush, Dr. Weefold. Well, I don't want all my... You know, theoretically, I don't want all my information known to everybody, but I keep telling everybody all my information on the show. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's true. So, so, you know, I'm patient number one. Next thing you know, you'll sue me for HIPAA violations. No, right? no, no, no. Uh, it's it's. I see the microphone. It's right in front of me. Our number is nine one nine eight six zero nine seven eight three, and we'll take your phone calls. Also, we're going to talk about. The best way you can avoid another heart attack. Apparently, you got to take your medicine. That's uh, details it, on that. It's it's more involved than that. And really, it's more than why. that. All right, well, that's coming up on Heart Health Radio and the Heart Health Radio Network. Welcome to Heart Health with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Call us with your health questions at 919-860-9783. So this is Heart Health Radio. Hey, you wear a white coat in your office? Um, I I do when it's cold. <laughs> in the summer, nope. Oh, okay. Yeah, All in right. the summer, nope. Um, the white coat has always been a symbol of the physician as long as I can remember. And I can, you know, you look at it, at the docks from the 1800s. Yeah. Nah, they were suits and ties, dude. Sure. Yeah. So it really started at Johns Hopkins with a guy named Osler, William Osler. And he would go from the lab, you know, where they were dissecting people, to the bedside, yeah. and then back to the lab. He would wash his hands because the germ theory was there. But the white coat was meant to uh, keep your suit and tie from getting splattered with blood. And at the end of the day, the white coat looked like the same white coats that the butchers have, right? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I wore my white coat into, um, into, uh, not Wegmans, but I've worn it into grocery stores, um, Food Line. Sure. And little old ladies will walk up with these huge slabs of meat they got out of the freezer and say, well, you cut this up for me. (laughs) <laughs> and one time I finally said, 
well, ma'am, my, my knife is really small. Okay. And then she looked at me and I said, I'm a doctor. I, I, and I actually took it out of her hand and brought it back. But think about it. That white coat gets dirty. Sure. And, uh, you know, one of the big ceremonies in medical school graduation is the coding. Thing yes. Where, you know, somebody has their dad who's a neurosurgeon and they're graduating from Havid and the dad comes and puts the coat on and everybody yeah. cries and gives themselves a hug because this became the standard symbol. Right. And it's, it's, you know, interesting how long your coat is, is how important you are. Really? So when you're a medical student, you get these coats that come to your waist. And when you're a resident, <laughs> you get a coat that comes, you know, below the waist a little bit. And I had to wear white pants and a white coat on the ward, okay? That was the, the uh, uniform of the Johns Hopkins internal medicine resident. And then when you became, you know, a resident, or, oh, a fellow, you got to wear the long coat. And the long coat was the symbol that, you know, you had the knowledge, you had the experience. Really? Well, you know what happened even in the pre-COVID era? They did some swabs on the coat sleeve. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I got anthrax and E. coli and you name sure. it. So they began to sort of question this. And is this really, you know, just because it's a symbol? Right. Right. And the other thing that's just dirty as all get out is the tie. Right, right. I mean, you know, I, listen, I stopped buying ties because every single one of them got a beef stain on it or well, I spilled ice cream on it. Or, but you, but you I'm don't a terrible la- eater. I don't know about you. But you don't launder a tie. You can. They don't, they're never the same. You, okay. They, you dry clean them. Right. And they're never the same. But anyway, so the scrubs are... Right. Another symbol of being a physician, and that's all I wear. Good that's for all you. I wear. I wear scrubs, and the reason is my arms are bare. And what can I do between each patient? I not only wash my hands, yeah, I wash my arms. Sure, and I'm not wearing a tie, so it's not going to fall into someone's face or on their wound or something like that. But what's really interesting mm-hmm. is that there are still facilities, uh, doctors' offices, doctors' groups that make doctors wear ties in the office sure and i had a friend he used to be in my group yeah and before i was unceremoniously left the group uh and went to work for a medical center that is not weight bed <laughs> he was sent home by a non-physician medical practice manager yeah because he wasn't wearing a tie oh man yeah that's gonna end i think that uh, public health uh would dictate that physicians should not wear clothes from home and should not wear scrubs from home. Okay. I have my scrubs professionally laundered with, you know, high temperature, yeah. all the things that you do to wipe out germs. Yeah. And then I come into the office and I change into the scrubs and at the end of the day I throw them in the hamper. And that's sure. in my office. And I think that that's the best way to go. Now, you, you know me. I'm a big germ fan. I think you should roll around in the dirt. Yeah. But when sick patients come in, you don't want to pass that pathological germ right, right. from one person to the next. And don't you don't want to infect an open wound. So I oh think my. if you know if, if you see your physician in a coat and tie and a white coat yeah. and they're coming at you, I think you would have every reason to say, please, could you take off your white coat, tuck your tie in, and roll up your sleeves, 
before you see me, wash your hands and your arms. And I think you would be in every one's book in the right. You talk about white coat hypertension. Yeah. Oh, it's so common. I, I, I don't wear a coat, and they still have it. People get high blood pressure because the doctor's there. I actually finally had a doctor take my blood pressure. No. Yes. It's very rare. I've gone to doctors Was the guy forever. high? Was he drunk? She, and no. She just was concerned that I had oh, I high know. blood pressure at the very beginning, and she took my blood. She, you know. She the, listens to our show. Right. She, she, That's got to be the answer. She understood that. Perhaps I was a little excitable early in the in the the appointment, and then she took my blood pressure. It was down a few points, yeah. which was a good thing. Yeah, but you want to know what? What's if our that? listeners were to ask for that, okay, if you're sitting in the doctor's office and he or she is saying, "I'm concerned about your blood pressure being right, very right. high," we're going to have to adjust your medicines. And you've been in there for five minutes, which is what the average face-to-face time now. Right. Between a doctor and a physician, it's five minutes. Um, What's um, that? The, the, you should ask, doctor, before you make any decisions, will right. you take my blood pressure again? Yeah. You know what's going to happen? What's that? They're going to say, not- uh, I don't know how. Yeah. I, or I, the- <laughs> I, I have done that since med school. And if you insist, I'm sure what will happen is that they'll open the door and say, uh, Jennifer or <laughs> Bill, can you come in here and take the blood pressure again? Yeah, it's it might terrible. Happen. Might happen. You know, and taking a blood pressure is not simple. I mean, you have to have the right size cuff, sure, so that that Velcro part is in a certain area. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you have to put it on. You have to make sure the cuff is completely deflated. Right. And you have to put it on. There's a little circle has to go where the where the artery is. Right. And you have to pump it up slow. Okay. And you have to let it down slow. All right. All right. Coming up on this show, Dr. Darcy Dane uh, with uh, uh, Carolina Brain Center is going to be on this show. We're going to talk about talk about an interesting topic, chiropractic neurology. That's coming up on this radio. Po- oh, Dr. Dane is here. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know we were doing an in-person. I always like live and in person. Live and in person is wonderful. That's coming up. Also, I want to talk to the doctor about sugar and salt. Why I love it so much, and is it good for me? That's coming up on Heart Health Radio. Now back to Heart Health. Have a question for Doctor Weefald? Call nine one nine eight six zero nine seven eight three. This is Heart Health Radio on the Heart Health Radio Network. Our number is 919-860-9783. Dr. Darcy Dane is here. Hi, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Good. And, uh, of course, Dr. Franklin Weefold also here. Hello, sir. Uh, hey, again. Yeah. Yeah. Do I, do I know you? Are you Boog Pal? Yeah, am I what? You don't remember that commercial? Who? It was a beer commercial. Oh my gosh. And the guy would always say, Are you Boog Pal? And Boog Pal was a uh, baseball player <laughs> for the Baltimore Royals. Anyway, I don't know where that came from. All right. So we're, we're still here. You're with Carolina Brain Center. Correct. Talk to me about where are you located and what kind of work do you do? Okay. So Carolina Brain Center is um, almost at the corner of Spring Forest and um, Falls of Noose Road, right across from Winston Steakhouse. And. Right. Um, so it's a chiropractic neurology office. So 
most people will tune out when they hear chiropractic, but chiropractic oh, neurology no, 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 isn't no, no, what no. you think. Yeah. <laughs> it's way more complex yeah, than that. Chiropractic has, is, is not the same as it was in the opie days of the 50s and 60s, yeah. okay? It's evolved into a very complex um, and educated and trained uh, multifaceted specialty. Yep. I think it's great. Yeah, so you're is. not going to get that. <laughs> you know, I'm a classic old-fashioned physician, but I'm open to yeah. all sorts of professionals Great. and their care. Does yeah. it does it still center around the idea of the manipulation of the spine? Not chiropractic neurology. Yes. Not at all. Not at all. Okay, that's yeah. probably maybe five percent of what I do. Yeah. So it's definitely a good tool in my toolbox, but it's not the the main thing that we do. So what we focus on is brain health and the the actual pathways that run through the brain. So. Uh, visual pathways, vestibular, meaning balance and inner ear workings, um, and cognitive, emotional regulation. Uh, we do a lot of work with movement disorders, concussions, kids with learning disabilities. Um, we're seeing a lot of long-haul COVID patients that are coming in with just weird neurological oh, stuff. Yeah. Like, that's, like that, what? That's amazing. What is the, what is the long COVID symptom that somebody's turning to you for? Yeah, so it's it's every patient's really different. Um, We've had, um, you know, like a mom who couldn't get out of bed for like three months and her husband brought her in and was just like, we've been everywhere. Is there anything you can do? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's see. Um, And, you know, we worked with her for one week in an intensive and she was um, probably 75% better. And we've been continuing to work with her and now she's back to work and, fantastic. you know, feeding her kids, making dinner. I can imagine, you know, uh, getting... Uh, those nerve pathways and the muscles and, and bones and joints and everything to be working together again sure. is a big part of it, yeah. you know, and also brain stimulation. For sure. Um, and I think, don't you think movement also and, and improved movement with COVID, um, because there are a lot of studies that show that clotting, abnormal clotting is one of the main problems. Yeah. And so if you, if you had your vascular you know, situation clotted in a lot of ways, uh, going to get those things open. You're going to start opening the arteries. Yeah, and I mean, we definitely better. coached our patients when they came down with COVID to, no matter how bad you felt, get up, move around, yes. try to prevent the pneumonia that from I setting in. Really and yeah, I said, yeah. I don't care how bad you feel, just get up and march in place if you need to. I'm really so. curious because I'm an ignoramus about this. <laughs> is What was your training? What? How did that work that you went from uh, chiropractic school to this specialty. Okay. So, um, you know, regular chiropractic schools is kind of like medical school. You've got to do your four-year undergraduate degree, and then you do three and a half years straight through. Um, for a chiropractic school, you have to take a, you know, part, uh, I guess there was like five boards we had to take. Um, and then I chose to specialize in neurology, so I did an additional schooling for that and cool. had to take Where four was days worth of boards. I went all over the place. I literally traveled every single weekend to a different state cool. taking classes. So it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, then you take the boards and pray you pass them. And <laughs> so. uh, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, it used to be you were board certified in, in cardiology forever. And I got to do it every 10 years. I'm sure you do. Yuck. Yeah. The brain keeps changing, or at least yeah. our knowledge of it. Absolutely. You well, and that's keep exactly retraining. the case. Yeah. Sure. There's just so much new research and things out there. So I spend a lot of time just reading and reading and reading, which is great, so. Two things about what I've read about you that okay. fascinate me. One is the concussion 
treatment. Tell me right. about that. What What is the understanding that you have about concussions, mm-hmm. and then how do you go about treating them? Sure. Um, so everything in our office is, is very diagnostic-based. So we have um, five different diagnostics that we run in the office, and then we do physical exam, uh, obviously. And um, basically, you know, with concussions, we – there's a, you know, there's kind of like a, a stretching that happens, um, you know, typically in the brainstem. And then you also have like the, you know, the actual brunt force on a part of the brain, whether you get hit in the frontal brain or, you know, the side and, uh, you know, starts affecting temporal lobes or cerebellum or something like that. So with all the diagnostics, there's, you know, different pathways for different eye movements, different um, postural movements um, and things like that. And so we can really start to dial into, hey, you know, your left brain stem and your right frontal cortex isn't working that great. So now let me produce a program specifically geared toward creating a neuroplastic change in that area. Uh Um, And neuroplasticity, people are pretty familiar with that, I think now. Um, And, you know, people are just getting way more proactive. They, you know, they they really want to know what they can be doing to help themselves. Sure. Preventative. We do a ton of baseline testing for, you know, for athletes and things like that. In case they get a concussion, we have a comparison. Um, we've worked, I mean, I've worked with Olympic athletes, professional athletes, and just everyday athletes. So, Have you, have you seen the same technique work post-stroke? Um, so we do some stroke work, mm-hmm. and it really just depends on how big the damage was, right? I mean, you can't grow new brain tissue. You can try to guide the brain to create these new synaptic connections. So, you know, somebody who's had a really severe stroke, we may not be able to do anything, but, you know, our exam's really going to tell us that. And so if I really don't feel like I can help somebody, like, I hate to fail, so I'll just tell them I really don't think that I can do anything for you, but, you know, let me see if I can maybe direct you, you know, somewhere else or, um, you know, something like that. So, yeah. What about vertigo? I mean, it, it's a common problem. Oh, very common. And it can become so severe. I had a very good friend who was just basically disabled yep. from the vertigo. Tell us what you do to diagnose it and fix it because uh, she had great success with going to physical therapy and getting uh, treatment. It took three months, but she's back functioning mm-hmm. now. Tell us what you do and what, what, what your take on it all is. So with um, vertigo, sometimes it's super easy. You can, you know, do an epley maneuver and it clears right up. Um, and that would be for like BPPV. Um, with other people, excuse me. <coughs> Don't um, worry, we've, we've had this it's right? allergy season. I always walk around with my Yeti. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so um, with other people, they can have like lingering effects from it. So you can clear yeah. sometimes the BPPV. Yeah, that's but an then, eye positional vertigo. Yeah, so that and means, the, right. yeah, when you move your head around, <coughs> uh, you get this spinning sensation. Correct. Because um, the balance is out. Now, the way I sort of, as a cardiologist, perceive it, isn't it a little crystal that's loose inside the semicircle? Yeah, there's a couple canal? different or theories. What, what, is, what is it really <laughs> so, in your mind? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's a couple different theories. You know, the people that, that get really fast results from the Apple maneuver, I would say, okay, that was probably some debris in the ear canal or a crystal that got misplaced or something. Um, but really for, an actual crystal? Yeah, you've got the little otoliths that sit on hair cells, and it's in a yeah. gel. And we have crystals <laughs> sitting on hair cells in our ears. Yeah, you do. Very and if they get knocked loose, yeah. I get dizzy? Yeah. Yep. 
or it could just that. be yeah or you know it, or it could just be some debris right um, right and so you know um so it just depends so like somebody that gets really good results with that grade i would say maybe yeah that was probably a crystal okay. issue or yeah. debris issue but then you have the people that they're you know they keep getting it and they keep having it so then you gotta look at you know is this Meniere's disease and so do we need to do some you know some lifestyle diet type stuff and then there's also um just a habituation where the body gets used to being dizzy and so then we quit moving our head so now if you move your head a little bit the body thinks you're moving it like way further and we get dizzy and so huh. those people come in and they're super stiff and they don't move their head and they don't like to turn and um, you know, so then at that point, we'd move very slowly through what I call a vestibular reset. And it's kind of my little coined thing that I do at the office cool. and I've just kind of figured out, you know, 20 years of practice. Uh-huh. Um, but then we also have really cool things like a gyro stem chair. And we're the first person to have that in the triangle. So it's um, it's kind of like being inside a video game. So you're you're locked into a chair and we can move it very, very slowly or we can move it very quickly if you're like, you know, an athlete or something like that. Um, but it helps, it brings a big sensory motor challenge to the brain, and then the brain has to figure out where you are in space, and it starts to recalibrate that whole system. That whole vestibular system gets recalibrated, body spatial mapping and things like that. So it's really um, a very successful um, therapy that we have, um, and it's it's not, you know, oh, that's the only thing you do. There's a lot of other stuff we do oh, yeah, to get sounds... somebody prepared for that. But yeah, um, yeah so vertigo, we, we see so many dizzy patients. It's it's really, it's a big part of the practice for sure. sure. So. I'm impressed that you do work with children who have learning disabilities or attention deficit disorder. What is that all about? So we've seen such a huge uprise in things like autism and learning disabilities. Yeah. And, you know, there's a bunch of different theories on why that's happening. You know, um, obviously, like prenatal, you know, health and things like that, uh, you know, can <clears throat> be a part of that. Um, I think because kids are locked into chairs all the time and they yeah. don't move as much. You know, when I was a yep. kid, they threw us in a, in a playpen and you moved around. Right. Right. Now they sit in these chairs, they're locked in <laughs> You know, they're just not getting as much movement. So I think that's part of it. So we start with really simple, um, what I call purposeful movement exercises that mm -hmm. we actually just give to the parents. We say, hey, go do these for two weeks. Um, some kids come back and that's all they needed. Yeah. I mean, teachers will be like, wow, what happened? Your kid's like not fidgeting. It's, not, you know. I mean, and that's just really simple stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and then for, you know, more severe cases, once we get done with that, um, then we start bringing them through like maybe an intensive program where they're in the office from 10 to 2. And, you know, we just go through a variety of different therapies. Again, working on those visual pathways, um, working on body spatial mapping right. and things like that. So um, that's a lot of fun working with the kids. <laughs> so how does somebody get a hold of you and get a consult yeah so the, what's going on. sure the best way to get in contact with the office is just to visit the website one there's just a ton of information on there but there's a consultation request form right on the website and, and what's your web address uh, it's carolinabraincenter.com okay and um and then one of our fabulous staff will reach out and get you on the schedule sometimes we start with just a phone call with me if it seems like a you know is this a good fit um other times you know my staff's pretty well trained and they're like we just yeah. need to get you in for an exam. <laughs> so, That's yeah. Dr. Darcy Dane. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
Carolina have a Brain great Weekend. Yes. Carolina Brain Center. Yep. Dot com. That's Thank right. you for coming in. All right. Thank you awesome. very much. This is okay. Heart Health Radio and the Heart Health Radio Network. Well, you know you make me wanna shout, kick my heels up and shout, throw my hands up and shout, throw my head back and shout. Come on now, don't forget to say you will. Listen to Heart Health Radio on Apple Podcasts or at Spotify. And we are shouting out Wendy in Raleigh. Yeah, Wendy, come on. Hey, Wendy, thank you very much for the phone call. As soon as I figure out what button to push, there you go. Hey, Wendy. Hi there. How are you doing? Good. You're on with Dr. Weefault. What can we do for you? Hey, uh, I really enjoy the show. I listen every week. Thank you. Um, thank you. I learned so much. But um, also, I think it was probably, was it Dr. Dane that was just on? Yes. Um. This is probably something more directed with her, but um, okay. maybe I should Go call ahead. her. But um, I was wondering if you'd ever heard of um, rare disorder called Malda-Debarkment syndrome. It's also called debarking syndrome. Debauching syndrome. Well, no, you know, it we, can't uh, be tell debauching. The We've called her debauching. back to the studio just to take this question, debauching syndrome. It can't be debauching no, de- syndrome. Debarkment. It's a French word. Debauchement. Debauchement. <laughs> Debauchement. Have you heard Dr. It? Dane, what do you think? It's maldi debarkment syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Yep. What What's is it called again? Maldi debarkment syndrome. Oh, well, whatever. So yeah, it's yeah, basically, yeah. you got, like, let's just say you go on a cruise, and then you get off the cruise, and you and you uh, still feel like you're on the boat. Oh, okay. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, so tell us about that. It happens to women over 40, and... Um, but it, but men do get it too. But it's mm-hmm. more women that get it than men. But anyway, I, I'm on my fourth episode. <clears throat> okay. And then this current episode started in 2014, and so I've had it 24/7. Although I've been really lucky the past three or four years, it's been down to about a 0.5 or one out mm-hmm. of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, there haven't been any. Um, any real therapies or medicine for it. There's been no cure for it. Right. Um, and I, did you say you had something to do with it? Do you have a gyro stem? Yeah, we have the gyro stem chair. Um, and that mm-hmm. that may be super helpful because basically we can habituate the, the vestibular system for movement mm-hmm. um, so that when you're not moving, you're not moving, but when you're moving, you're moving. So, yeah. so let me Which get probably makes most sense to you. Um, debarkment, like you've debarked the boat. Mm-hmm. Correct. And so you were on the Disney cruise, and you were hanging out with Mickey, and now you're off the boat, and you feel like you're moving like on a boat. Correct. Right. You feel like I have never heard of that. Or swaying side to side mm-hmm. like you're still on the boat. And, yeah. and and if you try to stand still, like with your eyes closed, you'll right. you'll actually be moving. Wendy, you know, back and forth. Wendy, did it actually happen when you went on a cruise and then came back? Well, evidently, because, I mean, we were we were on the cruise. This was in 2007 when yeah. it first got triggered, and it was a rough cruise. I'm not sure that it has to be a rough cruise, but ours was a rough cruise from Norfolk to Bermuda, and there was a tropical storm going through the Atlantic. Right. Um, and uh, so it was, and it was a smaller cruise ship, so I think that contributes a little bit. But, um, yeah, so... Um, Evidently, that triggered it, but you don't feel it the whole time you're on the boat. Although sure. I did have regular motion sickness 
um, because we did have some rough seas. But um, then the rest of the trip on the cruise was fine. Um, and then, like, even when I got off the port in Bermuda, I didn't notice anything. But it's like, because I guess then I got back on the ship, we're moving again. I think as long as you're on the ship, you're okay. Sure. <laughs> you, you just need to move on to a cruise ship. Yeah. You'll exactly. be fine. <laughs> it's, it's when you get off the ship that your brain doesn't seem to reset. And supposedly there's also something um, connected with not being able to see the horizon. Um, so if you can continually see the horizon when you're on the ship, you might be okay. Um, but that's not possible. Yeah, well, we definitely, there's been some really good research with, um, like, surround what they call optokinetics. So they'll put, like, bars yes. all around you and, and turn people right. with that. Um, and that's I been pretty helpful. I think Carolina's doing that. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people were going up to uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York for mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that's and where they were doing some of the research. So Yeah, Dr. Die, I think, up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another doctor, like in Oklahoma, that was doing something with it. And Wendy, um, some people were going to the gyro stem in Asheville, but now I hear, you know, we now have one in Raleigh. We do. We do. When you At would have Carolina to Carolina Brain Center. Right. CarolinaBrainCenter.com. <laughs> Sign is the website. her up. Now, there is a website called uh, W. No, wait. www uh dds no mddsfoundation.org mdds mal de de barkman syndrome foundation.org it's a you know wendy as you well know i this is um yeah we all commiserate (laughs) i i I, you know of course that the uh, johnny depp character on the pirates uh films Mm-hmm. The the reason he walks so unusually on land is not because he's drunk. Right. He he deliberately decided to mimic mm-hmm. this syndrome. Are you yeah. kidding? Mm-hmm. That's why Johnny Depp's character walks like he's drunk mm-hmm. when he's on land. He walks yeah. perfectly fine on the ship. Well, dang. Uh-huh. I am uh-huh. I learned so much that on this a, show. I just want to know why is the rum always gone? Why is the rum always <laughs> Hide the rum. <laughs> Wendy, I'm so sorry. We're not making fun, of course. Um, we hope that you can find some relief on this. Is it, is it um, the kind of thing that you found anybody that can help? Mm-mm. No? Most doctors look at you going, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Most doctors don't know anything about it. Right. Most doctors even ask me, is it in your head? Is it all in your head? I'm like, oh, yeah, it is in my head. Can you get it out? Yes. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> We're very sympathetic. Wendy, I'm so sorry. Listen, I would I would suggest carolinabraincenter.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All righty. All right. I think I'll give them a call. Good luck Thanks, to you. Wendy. Oh, God we bless. Learned, we, learned, we learned literally a new syndrome. Oh, no, I've never condition. heard of it. Never in my entire life. Yeah. And, and I went to Johnny Hopkins. They did not teach this yeah. at Johnny Hopkins. Well, uh, I... Am I correct that there are a lot of things that are syndromes that, for instance, Johnny Hopkins, you know, the, the fellows at Johns Hopkins Medical Center, might not have fully considered as conditions? Well, it says right? it's extremely rare, right? It's, no? It's pretty rare. Um, you know, it's just a lot of what we deal with are more 
and you're going to think of functional differently than me. Functional yeah. meaning like a pathway is not working correctly, right? So there's yeah. not really, sometimes there's not real a real diagnosis for those kind of things, yeah. right? Right. And right. one of my patients just last week who came from the Dominican Republic with his son, he was like, people need to stop looking for diagno- diagnoses and just look for results. I can't believe the results we've gotten with you. And I'm like, wow, yeah. that's kind of brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's no well, blood we have a saying here. Right. right. Whatever works that doesn't hurt you, have at it. Exactly. Right? exactly. Thank you. Thanks Thank you again. again. Okay. Appreciate All right, it. The phone's going to ring. It, I'm going to wait until you get in the other the room. room. And then, and then the you phone call will me ring again. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll That's how it works. Right. We, we might, give us your stuff. We might be calling you like on a Saturday afternoon All right. and saying, will you explain this to us, please? <laughs> Dr. Darcy I will do my Dane, best. <laughs> Dr. Darcy Dane with the Carolina BrainCenter.com. All right, Dr. Weefald, I would love to get rid of sugar in my life. Now, for the most part, I have. I haven't sprinkled sugar on anything, and I don't eat any food that's got that, you know, it's squirted the the corn syrup. Yeah, squirted high fructose corn syrup. And I I don't believe that's any worse for me than regular sugar, but regular sugar is so bad for me, I don't eat that stuff. Yeah. How good? What, what happens if I stop all sugar? Like the first three Can or four I? days, you're going to be miserable because yeah. your body has to readjust. Uh, the reason why sugar is so good is because sugar is what powers the brain. I mean, it feels good, sure, tastes good, and we and think about it. It's a powerful influence in our behavior. Yes, that you you know we crave sugar. Sugar tastes so good. For the most part. Right. But when you cut it out completely, then your body has to readjust its metabolic pathways. Right. And you're going to feel terrible. You're going to feel like you have cravings. You're going to maybe have a headache. Right. Uh, even get dizzy. You might get dehydrated. Um, but once you get off of it, and it's an amazing feeling. You have much more energy. You feel uh, better in terms of you know your overall sense of self. Right. And um, I, I've done keto diet, which is really on the extreme, right. you know, of no sugar and no white flour, no uh, high glycemic index foods. And I tell you, the first three or four days were quite a struggle, and it was very hard to stick with it. But once I did, man, I have energy. Did I feel good? And I'm sorry. I'm going to tell you all out there now. But- I just... I'm willing to sacrifice a few things in my life yeah. to enjoy my high glycemic index yes, yes diet. Yeah. Now, as a physician, I'm going to be prescribing and saying what's right for patients on an individual basis. Right. But sugar is your enemy. Is the enemy if the if I could pinpoint any food and anything that we ingest, and I, I would say I'll probably get in trouble with the medical board. But I think sugar is as bad for us as smoking, quite frankly. Right. And unfortunately, I do both. Uh, But it's just something that if you want to be healthy uh, as as well as you can, and you don't have uh, the parents who live to age 105 drinking and eating croissants, then quit sugar. Quit it. Stop it. That's all our time this week. This has been Heart Health Radio and the Heart Health Radio Network. Heart Health Radio is for information purposes only. Before taking any action, consult your doctor.